Our text this morning is the verses 26 through 28 of Genesis chapter 1. I'll read that with you once again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. After the sermon, we'll sing from Psalm 72. Our responsive song will be Psalm 72, 1, 4, and 10. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, what is the purpose of your life? Have you ever asked that question? Do you know who you are? Do you know why you're here? I'm sure many of you have asked yourself that question. For many people, the cycle of life on earth, birth and death, and, and life and, and work and death, and so on, it, it's often, it seems like a pattern with, with no end and no purpose, and this can leave people wondering what life is really all about. Do I have any significance? What am I doing here? Why do I go to work every day? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, we read about the purpose for our life. Why did God create human beings? Why did God put us here on planet Earth? But also we read about how he enables us to fulfill the mandate we have received. That creation mandate that we just read in our text. So I've summarized the sermon this way. At at creation, man received his God-given mandate to reflect God's image, to rule over creation, and produce godly offspring. Our text says... That when God created man, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And notice the difference in the wording compared to the other days of creation. On the other days, God said, and let there be, and it was. But now he is saying, let us make man. God is giving special attention to the creation of mankind, to the crown of his creation. God does not say this about any other creature. We have been created distinct from the animals. Only man is created in the image of God. And what does that mean? The text uses two words, the words image and likeness. And we can take those words to be synonymous with one another. And since they're used in combination, that adds to the intensity and the emphasis to what the scripture declares To be image bearers of God means we have been created with intelligence, with personality, and the ability to know our Creator. And therefore, we are able to reflect something of the nature of God. And there are some texts in the New Testament that help us understand what this means. In Ephesians 4, 
Paul says that the believer has put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He writes that in Colossians 3 as well. There he states, We have put on the new man who is being created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So righteousness and holiness and the knowledge of God and the truth of God are included in what it means to be created in the image of God. And furthermore, as we learned from the first part of Genesis 1, and as is reinforced by our text, God the Creator is a triune God. We know that God the Father created the world, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, but as we learned from John chapter 1, the Son was also involved, right? Without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Colossians 1, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So we learned already that everything in creation is held together by the power of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, the Son of God is the image of the invisible God. And here, in Genesis 1, we're told that we have been created in the image of God. So there's a connection there. God has created us in His image by forming us in the image of His Son. Think about that. That makes you worth more than just something. You are not descended from apes, and you are not like other creatures. You are distinct from all other creatures. It is only said of mankind that God breathed into him the breath of life. At the very least, this means that you have a high position in God's creation. It is evidence of, of of the high value that God places on you. And this is also true of the unbeliever. The fall into sin has resulted in a, in a denial of the created order because as a fallen creature, man no longer has the right knowledge of God, no longer reflects the image of God in which he was created, at least not the way God intended it. And yet, the image of God in man is not entirely eradicated by the fall. Even in the fall, there remains a remnant of the divine image. And for this reason... God later ordained capital punishment for murder because men are made in God's image. You can read that in Genesis 9, verse 6, and in James chapter 3, verse 9. So the image, this image in fallen man still includes the aspects of, of personality, intellect, moral responsibility, even a consciousness of the eternal. And even though unredeemed people are spiritually dead, Each person still possesses a soul. And when that soul is regenerated, it is capable of communicating with God. And the fact that human beings are created in the image of God has many practical implications. The first is that unless you have a right relationship with the Creator, yes, then it's true that life does not have any lasting purpose. Without that relationship, the only thing that you could ever write on your tombstone is, he was here, he lived for a while, and now he's gone. And what's the point of that? But if you know the eternal God through Jesus Christ, who revealed the Father to us, who by his death opened up the way to the Father, the way for us to have fellowship 
with the Creator. Well, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? And all the difference for this life and for eternity. If your life is hidden in Christ, if you have by faith in Him been buried with Him in His death and also raised with Him in His resurrection to a new life, then your life has purpose and it has meaning beyond the grave. And having been created in the image of God means that all human life must be treated with dignity and respect. That includes the unborn and the infirm and the elderly. They all have the same value in God's sight. It also means that both sexes, men and women, boys and girls, are image bearers of God. The text reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. At first glance, that seems like improper English grammar, but that is exactly what the text says. God created mankind, both male and female, and they are both created in the image of God. And that means that our sexuality is not determined by how we think or how we feel. And neither is it just a biological phenomenon. It's a gift from God. Our, sexuality, our sexual identity is, is part of God's will for us as image bearers of God. And both men and women and boys and girls have been given the office of image bearers. We are each individually called to represent God on this earth. And therefore every individual is to be treated with dignity and respect. And so it's important that we recognize God's design and God's divine purpose in every person that we meet. We need to keep this in mind. And perhaps even more especially when we encounter sin in the lives of, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's so easy to get turned off by sin in the lives of others and then to get turned off and turned away from those people. So easy to get disgusted by people. But when we recognize the image of God in others, then we need to keep on treating them with respect and with love and compassion and encourage them to live up to the image in which they have been created, their purpose as image bearers of God. That's what Paul writes in Colossians 3, for example. He says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. It's no wonder that the Lord Jesus Christ summarizes the Christian life by saying that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. In fact, the Bible tells us that if you are in Christ, you have put on the new man, created after the likeness of God. Well, that congregation, that's a call for us to be committed to grow in the image of God, to grow in godliness. As those who are in Christ, we're called to reflect the image of Christ. In every aspect of our lives, 
in our families and in the church and in our community. Secondly, when God created man in his image, the immediate consequence was that man was to have dominion over God's creation. God gave man the right to rule over all things. This dominion then involves a stewardship of the earth and its resources, but under the sovereignty of God. God gave the command to subdue the earth. So man's first duty then is to reflect God's image. His second duty is to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it. That implies that there's work involved. Even in the perfect setting of the Garden of Eden, man had to work to bring creation under his rightful dominion. In chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to work it and to keep it. And it's evident from the description, this is no mythical garden. Rivers ran through it, trees and shrubs and plants grew in it. It was a beautiful garden. God placed every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And it was Adam's task, together with his wife, to work this garden and to expand it. Adam and the generations that followed had the task to bring this garden, the order and the beauty of this garden, over the whole earth, to subdue the entire earth, to place the dominion of that garden over the entire earth, so that future generations of Adam's children and grandchildren could live in this ever-expanding garden. That word subdue in verse 28 implies that Adam and Eve and their children had the, had the duty to make the earth useful for human beings. Useful for humans to enjoy and benefit from, but even more importantly, useful for the purpose for which God had created them. In other words, God's, God's image bearers must go to work on this earth to make it possible for future image bearers too to increase and multiply and flourish in creation, to the honor and glory of God. We know, of course, that the sad consequence of Adam and Eve's disobedience is that all of this changed. Sin came into the created world, humanity was plunged into darkness, and we are now incapable of fulfilling our original purpose. Before the fall, in man the fall of man ruled over creation, but then, then came Satan, and he got man to listen to the lie. And Satan became the ruler of the world. So the only way for man to regain his rightful place of dominion over God's creation is also to exercise dominion, not only over the material world, but also over the spiritual world. The spiritual forces of darkness. And of course, that's also something we cannot do. Adam couldn't do that either. But thanks be to God, all is not lost. God promised Adam and Eve that one day, one of their descendants would come who would restore that dominion and crush the head of Satan. You see, God's plan of redemption is much greater than our disobedience, congregation, And in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have a Savior who did exactly that. He crushed Satan. He defeated that enemy. 
And as a man, he perfectly fulfilled and obeyed the creation mandate of Genesis chapter 1. And then that means also that in Christ, God has redeemed that mandate for all of us. He has redeemed our mandate and our dominion over creation. In Christ, then, we regain our rightful place as image bearers of God and as people who have dominion over God's creation and must subdue it. And in Christ, we also regain our rightful place of having dominion over the spiritual forces of darkness. Christ has been elevated to a place of dominion over all things. Ephesians chapter 1. All powers in heaven and on earth are subject to him. And if this is true of him, it's also true of those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, your life is hidden in him. His obedience is yours, but his victory is yours too. And this has practical implications as well. Not that we should try create a paradise on earth. Right? God doesn't give us license to dream of, of a life spent in a hammock between two coconut trees on a nice warm island. And life is a life of retired bliss, of no work and all play. Right? That's not to be the future, future, on the future radar of a Christian either. We are not to be pleasure-oriented, but oriented towards our God-given mandate. You see, while Adam and Eve existed in a place of perfect beauty and bliss and peace, we shouldn't think of paradise as a place of unrestricted pleasure. That's not what it was. Don't forget that the forbidden fruit also existed in paradise before the fall into sin. Heaven is not the experiencing of every desire, but it is the experiencing or experiencing the satisfaction of wholesome desires. And therefore, as redeemed people living in a fallen world, we must continue to work out that creation mandate. Wherever we can and are able, we must bring order out of chaos, subdue the earth, that is, follow God's pattern of creative cultural development. We are to explore and investigate God's creation and how best to use it. We are to use our creative potential to unfold creation beyond where we find it. To put it in very straightforward terms, Christians should strive to be at the forefront of science and technology and economics and politics and industry and agriculture. Coming up with new ideas, coming up with new inventions, better ways to do things as much as we are possible, as much as we can do to make this world a better place to live where God's people can flourish. All of life is under the dominion of Christ. And so there's no part of creation that is not under the dominion of those who are image bearers of God and of Christ. And that should encourage all of us If you are in Christ, then also all of your work is in Christ. Even if you're performing the most menial of tasks, like dusting the shelves or carrying out the garbage on a Wednesday morning, you are bringing glory to God. But that also means we have to take care of what we already have and maintain what we have been given 
to the best of our ability. That means that in our homes, in our families, in our church, in our community, at our work, at school, that we ought to have a reputation as image-bearing subduers of the earth. We ought to have the reputation of being image-bearing subduers of God's creation. That means you are honest and conscientious, you're not a slacker, and you have a servant-like attitude. Remember the words of Paul in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, you are serving the Lord Christ. Well, how are we to do this in a fallen world? A congregation, the only way we can have dominion over creation and over the spiritual realm is to put on the full armor of God. And that means especially that we become people of the word and people of prayer. Prayer is the means by which God gives you his grace and Holy Spirit. Prayer is the means by which God gives you and clothes you in the armor of faith. So both in the church and in our homes and in our communities, we are to rule over all creation, but also over the spiritual forces of darkness under the authority of Christ and through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. So God puts us on this earth to reflect his image and to rule over creation, but there is also a third aspect to our God-given mandate. God commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And while God blessed the animals also to be fruitful and multiply, it was only man who was commanded to fill the earth. Furthermore, when God created the fish and the birds and the animals, he created many of them. Immediately he created many of them, but he only created two human beings. That's very significant. God could have created many people immediately. But he didn't. Instead, God brought Adam and Eve together and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. So it is God's express purpose that the manner in which we fulfill the earth and subdue it is through marriage and through the raising of children. Marriage and family lies at the heart of fulfilling our God-given mandate. And so any attack on marriage, any attack on the family is demonic. That comes from Satan too. The push for homosexual marriage, for example, or polyamorous and polygamous marriages undermine God's created order. The LGBTQ agenda also is a direct attack on God's created pattern for life and family. God's pattern for mankind to fulfill the creation mandate is found in his command, be fruitful and multiply. So that means then that for a Christian married couple, having children is not an option. God has commanded us to have children. We understand, though, that there are legitimate exceptions to this rule. It should be clear that not every person 
that not every person must become married and have children in order to fulfill the mandate of being an image bearer and subduing the earth. If that were true, then it could also be said of Jesus that he had not fulfilled God's creation mandate because he was never married and he never had children from a marriage. There are people who have been given the gift of singleness. The Apostle Paul is one example. There are also married couples who are not able to have children or unable to have more children. And because of how sin affects life, this this is a cause for for sorrow for, for some people. But we should be careful to understand that childlessness does not make a marriage incomplete. Marriage is in the first place one man and one woman coming together under God to help each other in all things that belong to this life and to the life to come. And if the Lord gives this couple children, that is an added blessing. But when God withholds children, that doesn't mean that the marriage is less or inferior. All this does highlight, however, that children are a blessing from the Lord and are to be counted as such. And married couples, especially believing married couples, are called to be fruitful and multiply. And so the point is, married couples must, yes, it's true, they must desire to have children. And if that desire is not there, if as a married couple you don't want to have children, then you ought not to get married. Congregation children are one of the greatest blessings and biggest responsibilities God entrusts to us. And that's why also it's so important that we take our vows seriously when at the baptism of our children we promise to bring them up in the fear of the Lord. We promise to teach them to know Christ. And that means first and foremost that we also image Christ to them. And that indicates again quite clearly that there is a spiritual application to Genesis 1, verse 28. And that application is found in the words of Jesus to his disciples when he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So making disciples of all nations means to subdue people for the kingdom of God. It means then that that is also one of the ways in which we do our part in subduing Satan by rescuing, taking part in rescuing them from the dominion of darkness and seeing them transferred into the kingdom of light. Because people cannot reflect God's image and Christ's image and rule over his creation and produce godly offspring if they do not live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So one of the greatest blessings that God gives you and that you can ever receive from him him is when the Lord gives you spiritual children, children who remain with you through all eternity. And so we can conclude that part of our God-given mandate to reproduce godly offspring is that we don't just do that in our own homes, but also by bearing witness of the saving work of Christ Jesus, so that others too would come to know their Creator and become children of God and then exercise their creation mandate. 
That means that we as a community, as a church community, are also together, corporately responsible for every baby that is born in our midst. Every baby that's born into God's covenant and congregation. Yes, the primary responsibility remains to the parents, but the church is responsible too. And not just corporately via the office bearers, but each one of us bears responsibility in this regard. We have a corporate responsibility to pray for the children of the congregation, a corporate responsibility to support the task of parents and their educating their children, and to ask God to bless, for example, the catechism instruction that our children receive. And so there is an incredible amount of blessing wrapped up in the creation mandate that God has given to mankind. So much blessing and so much comfort. The meaning of life, our dignity, is found here in this passage. God has given us, has created us in his image, male and female. And he has made us to rule over his creation. He has made us stewards of all that he has made. And he's given it to us. And in Christ we are also to rule over this fallen world, over the ruler of this fallen world, over spiritual darkness. God made us to produce godly offspring both in our families and in our church family. Congregation, this is what God expects from us. This is why he created us, to become like the one whose image in whom you were created, to reign with him, to be used by him in his kingdom. Well, may it be our fervent prayer and sincere desire then to be clothed in the armor of God, so that we can carry out our God-given mandate, the mandate that we received at creation, the mandate that has been redeemed by Christ for his glory and the coming of his kingdom. Amen.